Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Yep. So for today's podcast, we're going to feature an analysis of the third episode of the season entitled Point of Light. We'll then provide short takes on some observations we had while watching the show. And then finally, we'll close out the episode with a report on other Star Trek-related news. So, as always, let's start the episode with a synopsis. Our review contains a number of spoilers, so you may want to go and watch the episode first if you haven't already done so. So here's a synopsis. So basically, Gary, this is a backplot episode focused on three storylines. The first deals with Amanda and Michael's inquiry into Spock and his whereabouts. The second story deals with the Klingon Empire under the rule of Chancellor Laurel. Then finally, uh, we see uh, the story dealing with Tilly's dead friend, May Ahern, and Tilly's fear that she's losing her mind. So let's start with the mystery behind Spock. Sure. Using one of Sarek's ships, Amanda unexpectedly intercepts the discovery to share her concerns about Spock with Michael. We find out that she had recently made an attempt to see her son at the psychiatric ward on Starbase 5. She was rebuffed and not even allowed to collect his personal belongings. Amanda then confesses she stole Spock's medical records, but needs Michael to help her decode the protective encryption. Michael then informs Captain Pike of the situation. Initially, he refuses to allow her to break the encryption. However, after learning Spock is accused of murdering three doctors and has escaped, Pike orders Michael to learn what she can about Spock's plight and how they can help clear his name. The medical records reveal that Spock may have extreme empathy deficit, something that harkens back to an exchange between Pike and Burnham from episode one. Surprisingly, Amanda doesn't refute the claim, even though in a prior scene, she describes her son as gentle and kind. She surmises he may have developed psychopathic tendencies because of a conflict between his Vulcan upbringing and his human desire for emotional exchange. Amanda fears that by abiding with Sarek's wishes to raise Spock in the Vulcan manner, denying him the natural display of emotions normal between a human mother and a child, she may have led to Spock becoming someone who is emotionally compromised. In this very vulnerable moment, Michael is moved to tell Amanda that she should not blame herself for Spock's condition, since it was actually her, not Amanda, who was the cause of Spock's withdrawal. Michael justifies her actions by saying it was her way of removing them as a target of the Vulcan logic extremists. In response, Amanda is so hurt by the revelation that she kisses Michael goodbye and leaves to find Spock by herself. So let's now turn to the Klingon storyline. Here... Chancellor Laurel finds it difficult to muffle opposing voices to rule over the 24 houses of the Klingon Empire. As you know, since it's primarily a, a, patriarchal, a patriarchal society, 
The Klingon leaders disparage her governments as well as her that of her appointed torchbearer, Ash Tyler, whose human features and bearing appears to be an affront to their people. Concerned that the alliance of the houses may not hold, Ash contacts Michael Burnham to report on the status of the situation. Laurel loves Ash, who bears the altered body and memories of her former lover, Vok. However, Ash finds it difficult to, to return her affections since he was sexually abused by her as a captive on a Klingon prison ship. However, after Ash learns Vok had sired a son with Laurel, he renews his dedication to her and accepts the son as his own. This familial arrangement is short-lived, as the couple are attacked by members of the House of Kor. Although they kill many of their aggressors, it takes the arrival of Giorgio to ensure their safety. In a private conversation with Laurel, Giorgio convinces her that the only way she can retain her office and keep the peace is to rid herself of both Ash and the baby. Laurel fakes the death of the two and confers upon herself a new title as the mother of the Klingon Empire. Back on the Discovery, Ensign Sylvia Tilly continues her quest to successfully complete the command training program. However, she is plagued by the appearance of a vision who identifies itself as May Ahern, a friend of hers from middle school. May continues to appear only to Tilly and has become more aggressive and demanding. Tilly believes that she's losing her mind. She shares her concerns with Michael, who convinces her by using logic that May is not a figment of her imagination. Enlisting the assistance of L Lieutenant Stamets, he identifies May as a mutated mycelial spore that she received during their time in the mirror universe that has gained access to the ability and grown within Tilly's body. Stamets extracts the invader and Saru has it encased in a protective force field. So now let's talk a little bit more about our observations uh, throughout this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to first start talking about Amanda and Michael. Right, because, because although this is was not as dramatic an episode as the first two, mm -hmm. I think there were still a lot of significant things that went on in this episode that we ought to identify. Definitely. So first of all, kudos to actress Mia Kirshner as Amanda and, as always, Sonequa Martin-Green as Michael for pulling off their scenes together filled with a lot of exposition. Oh, yeah. I mean, there yeah. was so much exposition. It would have definitely buried less act actors, but they were able to pull it off. Right. We liked the way that they played the right beats throughout their scenes to keep us listening. Right. The character of Amanda definitely comes off as someone willing to say or do anything to save her son. As previously stated, she claims Spock uh, is gentle and kind, while in another scene she says he has psychopathic tendency. She stole her son's medical file and has taken one of Sarek's ship with 
a diplomatic registry to search for him. Notably, Sarek is absent from this mission. You know, I think we're really missing a line or two, Gary, uh, from Amanda stating how he feels about his son's predicament. I would suspect that, yes, that's a good question. She may not know that. And if she doesn't, she's not really inclined maybe to inform him of her actions. I don't think Sarek knows that she's gone as far as she has. Right. That, that may be the case. So, although the discussion of the Red Angel wasn't as prominent as it had been in the last two episodes, there are new things we learn that are significant to our to the mystery. Specifically, that it it had appeared to Spock as a child. Michael and Amanda also find numerous drawings of the mysterious apparition in his medical files. Amanda tells her of a of Spock's childhood obsession with this imaginary creature. So we get some backstory that there's actually more to the connection between the Red Angel, Spock, and what's going on right now. Yeah, and I, I think we as viewers, of course, knew that Spock had seen this apparition as a child and, and has continued to, but it, this was new to Amanda. Right, Amanda right. thought it was over with, right. that you know so, somehow you know by him drawing it, that it had um, these visions had dissipated. Right. She she informs us of a particular occurrence when Michael had ran away from home. They had no idea where to find her. Spock came to Sark and Amanda, saying that the Red Angel had appeared to him with information on how his parents could find Michael. Sark followed Spock's instructions, and they were able to identify exactly where she was. In exchange, Michael then tells Amanda she had recently seen the Red Angel on an away mission when she had been in injured on the asteroid. Mm -hmm. For us, this means that we now have two instances that we can identify when the Red Angel has intervened on behalf of Michael. This can't be just a coincidence. Rather, it could be a clue that Michael will play some key role in solving the mystery of the identity of the Red Angel and the Seven Red Burst. When Michael shared her belief that it was she, not Amanda, that had caused Michael uh, Spock's withdrawal from the family, this leads to a larger cause of a division that has gravely affected the functioning of the entire family. Something that we as Fans of Star Trek have been witness to since back to the, the TOS episode, Journey to Babel. Michael's choice to intentionally hurt Spock in an attempt to create distance between them deeply hurts, uh, hurts her foster mother. Amanda's reaction is to exclude her from the search for Spock. She no longer needed to deal with Spock's plight. Amanda coldly states that she will deal with it alone. You might think Amanda would be more sympathetic to Michael's justification in her treatment of her foster brother. Instead, her reaction is one of betrayal, mm -hmm. similar to a certain extent in the way that Michael reacts when she learns Sarek had kept her from joining the Vulcan Expeditionary Group. In both cases, both, my, both Michael and Amanda blame, had blamed themselves initially for the situation, only to find out that someone close to them had portrayed them in a deeply personal way. Also, as previously men mentioned, 
Amanda once acquiesced to her husband's desire on how to raise Spock against her better judgment. So Amanda spurns logic in favor of emotion. A desperate woman, she now seems unable to trust anyone but herself to save her son. It's clear that that the two women differ in both their characterization of the circumstance and the, the characterization of the Red Angel. Amanda sees it as a menacing being who has plagued Spock since childhood, while Michael says she cannot identify any sense of malice or evil intent behind its actions. All right. So... Before we leave this discussion of Amanda and Michael, we want to underscore the significance of the break in their relationship. Right. For Amanda, her time on Vulcan truly must have been stressful and at times quite lonely. We are given no information about how Amanda occupied her time outside of her status as the wife of the Vulcan ambassador. It does not appear she had any Vulcan friends outside side of her family, and Sarek restricted her from acting on motherly tendencies toward her son. The very things a human needs to be an emotionally healthy adult are denied her. Besides love, one wonders why Amanda was so attracted to Sarek and strictly submitted to Vulcan traditions despite her own misgivings on how detrimental they would have been to her half-human child. Now, despite the tragic circumstances of Michael's inclusion in Sarek's household, the child unwittingly became the anecdote to Amanda's emotional deprivation. As she stated in the episode, Amanda says, I gave Michael all my joy. You know, in in a sense, this episode gives us more context for Amanda than we have ever seen in the 50-some-odd-year history of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. We get a greater sense of both her misgivings as well as her, as well as decisions that she's made that has impacted major characters that we've seen and how those have affected us. I mean, her as well. And to a certain extent, I think that one of the things that's very key here is that she has not always found herself accepting the structure of living in a Vulcan culture and, how, right. and the challenge thereof. So, I mean, I I really enjoyed th- this episode for that much because we got to know more about who Amanda is other than the wife of Sarek, the mother of Spock, which has primarily been mm-hmm. the two ways you could have identified her prior to this. And I think there is precedence for this, for, for, for their depiction of Amanda right, right, right. this way. Uh, I think about the animation, animated uh, series on Star Trek that, that uh, premiered after uh, the original series. Oh, you mean... And, uh, you know the episode where, yesteryear. Yeah, yesteryear. Spock goes off. Right. And uh, and in one of the timelines, he's actually killed. And right. they say that Amanda just leaves Sarah. Right. Right. And so, right. To me, and they say that those that animated series is canon. Yes. So to me, that is the precedence for the fact that you know she does allow. Uh, Sarek to have his way as far as the rearing of Spock, but 
if something that drastic happened, like in this case, it's that he committed himself to a psychiatric ward and he may have murdered some people, and also, or in the case of the cartoon that he is killed, that she would say, "Okay, I've had enough. You right, know, right. you've had your way. Right. You know, I'm through with this." Yeah, there are definite limits to how much she's going to go. That's do right. Because she can't see herself not being the human mother that she is. That's that's correct. Yeah. So now let's turn our attention to the Klingons. Clearly this episode gave the writers a chance to make some corrections in their depiction of the Klingons and also the direction their story would take. So I think it'd be great if I first remind our listeners uh, what the point of light, what the episode title means. So Kalis, uh is the light, you know, that they're referring to in the title. Uh, he, it is Kalis the Unforgettable, who was a 9th century messianic figure and the first ruler of the Klingon Empire. In season one of Discovery, Kalis's legendary efforts to unite the various factions of his people served as an inspiration for Takuvma and his disciples Vak and Laurel. In a prayer to Kalis, Vak specifically asked, give us light to see. Since the leaders of the Klingon houses appear to be still at odds with each other despite Kalis's examples and teaching, it is fitting that the Klingon scenes are presented in a darkened environment. You know, I, I really felt that we needed to say this because there were some reviewers yeah. who were very critical of the fact yeah. that that the scenes were done in this darkened atmosphere, and there's a reason for this. Yeah, it's and metaphor. It, it's metaphor. It's, it's complimenting the story. Right, 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 These right. are dark times. Right. These are still dark are still times dark for the times. Klingon. You're absolutely right about right. that. So um, I also want to talk about the use of the word mother. Uh, we really, I think we appreciate how the writers have made the feminist undertones even more prominent when Laurel replaces the title of chancellor with that of mother. This reminds us of the character of the all-mother who served as the leader of the New Eden community in last week's episode. In fact, what they're doing, they're really elevating the status of mother. Mm. Although our own, although in our own country, the United States, uh, we have never managed to elect a woman as its president or vice president, we are reminded of other nations and cultures who have been more open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, that's our fault. That is our fault. Yeah. Another thing in regards to the, the Klingon storyline was the convention of the baby. While some commentaries have cited that the introduction of Vak and Laurel's baby was a soap opera element, which you, you, you could make that argument, you're really missing the point. I mean, we disagree. It's not Laurel who uses the baby as a tool to win Ash's affection. She has little to do with the child. In fact, she hasn't even named it. Um, it's actually Ash who, who takes on the more comforting parental responsibilities. We, we see a scene later when he's on the, the Section 31 ship with, with Mira Giorgio where he he's, has the child in his arms. That's right. Um, it's so... He's the one who's actually taking charge 
and declaring that the three of them are a family, at least temporarily. And while the introduction of the baby was not a necessity for this storyline, it does provide a prompt for future story based on what this child uh, will have impact he'll have on these extremely strong characters. I also want to talk about Ash Tyler, who, of course, is one of my favorite characters. I really uh, enjoyed how... Um, uh, Shazad Latif. Shazad Latif. Of course, one of my favorite characters, and I can't pronounce his name, but yeah. how Shazad Latif uh, portrayed the character uh, in season one. Uh, and we know that when they when they said at the end of last season that he was going to go and he was going to help Laurel, we knew that wasn't going to last long. Right. I mean, he really could not remain as Laurel's confidant aid or lover his contact with michael only confirmed his divided loyalties that the klingons rightfully believed could not be accommodated giorgio was right that laurel had to make a choice between her love for ash and her position as chancellor she could not do both however we knew from the moment we heard about the proposed Star Trek series based on Section 31 that this character, talking about Ash Tyler, would be a prime candidate for the clandestine agency. Ash is a physically modified Klingon with the memories of both a former Federation officer and the torchbearer of the Klingon Empire. Why wouldn't Section 31 want him to join those brought together to protect the interests of the Federation? We look forward to seeing how Ash tries to reconcile his activities with Section 31 with his continued questioning of his identity as well as his affinity, as well as his affinity to both Michael and Laurel. However, we know with Giorgio in the mix that that former emperor of the mirror universe will have other obje objectives to preoccupy Ash. We're definitely looking forward to seeing what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, next, we want to talk about hair and appearance. Fans, as I said before, uh, complained about the hairless Klingons. I didn't think they were great in the, uh, the, the movies either, so I understand that. And so the producers came up with a rationale that the Klingons shaved their heads during Time of War, which ended with the finale of Season 1. That sounds great on paper. <laughs> the only problem is, since no time has passed between the ending of Season 1 and the beginning of Season 2, you have to wonder how the Klingons grew out their hair so quickly. <laughs> I mean, I'm to, just saying. They need to patent it I mean, and sell it. I mean, I'm just saying. They could get rid of male pattern baldness straight up. I know that's right. So watching the episode, one can also see how the designers have depicted some of the Klingons to bear closer resemblance to Klingons depicted in previous TV shows and films. For instance, there was a close-up of one Klingon similar in facial features and attire to General Chang, the role played by Christopher Plummer in Star Trek The, the Undiscovered Country. Also, those representing the House of Kor... Specifically, Cole Shaw, uh, favorite Klingons that we had seen bef 
previously in The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine. I'm not bothered by the appearance of the Klingons, to be honest with you, since it's changed repeatedly since the premiere of Star Trek, the motion picture. I mean, that was one of the first things that struck me when I watched that movie. I said, where the hell are these guys? These aren't Klingons. (laughs) Klingons Klingons look like like they come from the Mediterranean. These aren't Klingons. So anyway, I'm sure that uh, the concern more about, I'm, I'm personally more concerned about the prosthetics and how they may be impairing the actor's ability to articulate their lines. That's right. That's really evident to me, specifically when they're speaking Klingon, but I think also there are times when it has an impact on them being able to do their job using English. Right, right. And you could definitely see it in this past episode yep, yep. because remember in season one, there was a. Uh, they, when they were together, when it was just Klingons, they spoke Klingon, right. and they just had the subtitles. Right. But in this one, you know, they would just give you a little bit of the Klingon. Then they would just use the convention where they would go. They translate to English. And it was very difficult, especially in the case of Mary Chifo, who we know is a good actress. Right. Uh, it was. It seemed like it was very difficult for her to articulate. Yeah, I think they're going to have to solve this soon because they've got two makeup artists that are great artists right but they need to be more considerate of the practicality of their work that's right well now we want to uh switch over to tilly who you know the last two podcasts we you know gave her a short shrift i would say yeah we really and, didn't focus on this storyline as much as we should have and in the past. So, uh, but we definitely want to do it this time we we really would like to take the time to commend Mary Wiseman for her portrayal of Tilly in this episode. Yeah. Uh, here she is as a woman who feels like she's losing her grasp on reality and is no longer fit to be in the command training program. In particular, we were impressed with the scene of her on the bridge in which she's having a meltdown. A lesser actress may have... Uh, been tempted to play the scene for laughs, but Wiseman's portrayal evokes empathy from viewers as we watch her unravel before our eyes. We also wish to make a note of a subsequent scene where Tilly shares her distress with Michael. Here we are reminded how far the relationship has come since they first met aboard the Discovery under difficult circumstances. Despite Michael's own pain regarding her newly estranged relationship with Amanda, she puts aside her own problems to listen and reassure her friend, as well as thinking of the team needed to address Tilly's predicament. Ironically, Tilly and Michael have developed a much stronger sibling relationship than the dysfunctional one Michael shares with Spock. The other thing I also want to uh, highlight is there were a number of us, uh, not just us, but other people who had commented on that, the, the fact that Tilly was a little too extra in the last two episodes, that she went, the, the, it was, the jokes were a little too silly. Well, and the acting too broad. The last, yeah, and I think that in this episode specifically, when she's, unburdening herself to Michael, that's a real serious per- mm. performance that she's putting on. And it's clear that, they're, that, that the pain of what this is 
doing to her, the questioning of her own sanity is having a toll. Right. And 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 Mary Wiseman really plays that. It's no, there's no jokes, and as you said, there's no tips that make any of that humorous. Mm-hmm. They kind of play it for the emotional and serious weight that it deserves, and I think that that's, that really shows the breadth of her abilities mm. more so than um, we we maybe have given her credit for uh, previous to this. And I think we should also give credit to the director. Yes. Olatunde, this is the first episode he's done this season, although he had done several. A couple of the uh, really highlighted episodes from the uh, Mirror Universe episode, and now being an executive producer as well, he has a lot more say in the show. Definitely. So this is, I I, I think this has been a great opening. And I know a lot of people are going to look at this one and say this episode isn't that strong. And I beg to differ if you really focus right. on the character development aspects and specifically the information that you that is revealed about the 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 Michael's background, her relationship with Spock, That's right. and how it impacts Amanda. Though that those things are significant in regards to to um, moving the the story forward. That's right. That's right. Remember, we're building our arc. You know, right. and so these are just elements of that art, right. and so um, and they're going to pay out. Trust me. The next time Amanda and Michael see one another, it is going to be tense, and it's going and and we're going to see that based on what went down in this episode. Exactly. So, Gary, let's now turn to some Star Trek news. Yeah. So this past weekend, excuse me, this past week, they had the t- the Television Critics Association meetings, also known as the TCAs. And Star Trek Discovery did their panel on the day that CBS presented their information. The panel figured um, executive producers Alex Kurtzman and Heather Caden, as well as actors Sonequa Martin-Green, Anson Mount, and Ethan Peck. There were a few insights that were presented. Well, new insights. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, so currently... In the post-production stages of the finale for start for season two, so they're just finishing up putting a, the touch last bits touches on the last episode. That's right. Um, the production staff already has big ideas for number th- for season three, but have not received any official word on its renewal. I, at this time, you may remember by the third episode of the first season. CBS had already renewed it for a second season based on the numbers, and I suspect that that's going to be forthcoming. I'm not really worried about a third, you know, third season third of the show. I think I think they have invested in this show. They and they have seen a return on the investment. That's right. They had a huger audience for the premiere week. That's th- right. Than they had had the last year. So I'm confident that there that that there will be a third season. They also talked about creating a new canon for Spock which may be different from the one we might expect. And you know what? I I think that there is breath in there for that. You would have thought that watching the original series, right after the journey to Babel, that whatever friction existed between the fa- in the family right. was fixed by the fact that Spock sacrificed himself to help save his father's right. life. But later on, we find out that there's still a division that exists between the That's two right. of them. So there, it, it must be something deeper, and I think this is where we're going to finally get a sense of how that is manifested. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, one will see a greater variety of alien creatures in the show as evidence in this episode, which 
I'm not exactly crazy about. I'm not. I'm not one looking for a Star Wars Me medley, medley of, of of aliens running through. The yeah, show. I could. I could definitely use less of this. Uh, definitely a yeah. point of light episode. You saw those those other alien beings with the big heads. You know, sta- they're just standing around. I right, mean, they don't even right. see like they were any function. They're just standing well, there. Well, that, that was, again, going back to Star-, Star Trek, the motion picture, that's really one of the things that you kind of question because in the, the in one of the big scenes, the big crowd scenes, where Kirk comes out and announces right. the, the, the launching of the Enterprise, there's this huge array of people working for the... Of the Federation, and and a number of them are aliens. In fact, that's where the Saurian is first seen. Right. I don't need to see that. Like no. you said, that's no. that's Star Wars. No. You know, that's we can do it. Yeah, let Star Wars. Let Star Wars do that funky stuff because right. they they obviously have to do something to make that 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 stuff interesting. Exactly. <laughs> so here's more Star Trek news uh, about the Picard series. Uh, as you know, it's going to premiere in late fall 2019, and what we found out is that there's going to be 10 episodes, uh, and it also uh, is planned to be an ongoing series. Right. Yeah, in fact, another thing that he said was that, it, think of it as a 10-part movie, right. if you will. So, so again, I'm assuming that means it's serialized, and right. so everything is going to build episode by episode, mm-hmm. which I think is going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And then next up, episode four of Star Trek Discovery, season two, and the Obol for Sharon. The ship is brought to a standstill by some anomaly that we as yet don't know what it is. And then um, we see that there, we finally get an appearance uh, by number one from the Enterprise played by Re- Rebecca Romain. Saru appears to be suffering from some fatal disease that we're going to have to address or else we're losing our favorite Kelpian. That's right, <laughs> which we doubt happens, which but it'll be happens. interesting to see right. what happens. And then uh, the fungi-like entity that Stamets extracted from Tilly seems to be trying to invade Tilly's body once again. Yeah, this is going to have a little bit of my action in it. Definitely. So... Until that time, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, Facebook, Facebook.com, Star Trek AOD, on our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where you can where we offer additional articles on Star Trek Canon, interesting sidebar issues and aspects of the show. Also, email us at the show. Uh, Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. I got nobody emailing me about my comments last week about the Orville, so I guess everybody <laughs> that listens to us must actually agree with me. Oh my God. Which is fine. I don't have any problems with that. Um, but until then, live long and prosper.